Welcome to Respond to Resilience, along with my co-host, Dr. Stacey Raymond, I'm David Ashinger. In this episode, we'll be speaking with retired police sergeant and author Michael Sagru about an incident response that instantly changed his whole world and led him to become an advocate for first responder PTSI and suicide prevention. We invite you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Respond to Resilience. We're also on Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc., pbsradio.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website is respondertv.com. We'll be right back to speak with Michael after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Responder Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Limley, LCSW EMTB. And we'd like to welcome Michael Sagru to Responder Resilience. Great to see you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, Michael started his law enforcement career in the U.S. Air Force, and immediately after honorably separating from the Air Force, he joined the Walnut Creek, California Police Department. As a brand new police sergeant in 2012, Michael responded to a critical incident that ultimately changed his whole world. Uh, the after effects of this incident began a journey where Michael experienced administrative betrayal and a downward spiral affecting his work, his marriage, his integrity, and his health as he had to constantly relive the traumatic incident uh, for years afterwards. Michael's story is one of post-traumatic growth and transformation and of having the courage and strength to buck the stigma that prevents law enforcement professionals from seeking mental health services. Michael finally did ask for culturally competent help and began the healing process. And today he generously pays forward his uh, his journey by openly discussing and sharing his story as an author, as a speaker, as a peer volunteer at the West Coast post-trauma retreat, and as an ambassador for Save a Warrior. Michael's a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, and training on post-traumatic stress injury, PTSI, and first responder suicide prevention. And he speaks at law enforcement agencies all over the U.S., his book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, written along with Dr. Shauna Springer, tackles the complexity of trauma within the law enforcement community, uncovering unspoken barriers, and outlines a path to healing. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. So I'll, I'll start the questions. Um, uh, Michael, can you just uh, briefly describe that critical incident when you were a new patrol sergeant uh, that, that changed your life? Yeah, basically it was a, a couple inside a condominium who had called 911 and they reported that there was a subject armed with a knife who was trying to kill them. Hmm. And our shift started the day after Christmas. I was the only supervisor on duty, minimum staff team, and the call came in a little bit after 3 a.m. And so we responded to the condominium and we got there. It was dead silent. 
The front door was locked. We noticed there was a huge window that had been shattered inside the condominium. And at that point, it was just myself and one other officer, and we had to enter the condo. And we did. We eventually encountered an armed subject at the top of the stairwell who was armed with a butcher knife. Huh. And that huh. subject was between us and the couple that we didn't know if they were bleeding, dying out, or what had happened to them. And so mm-hmm. yeah. um, this individual then, with the butcher knife, raised it up and came towards us and attacked position and we unfortunately had to take his life to save not only our lives but the lives of the couple that was barricaded upstairs um and if following all of that uh, were there situations where your post-traumatic stress was triggered or reactivated in your daily life or on the job or any other activities you know i noticed almost immediately just uh, an entire change in how i felt um, right after the shooting, I'd been up for numerous hours, gone through an interview and eventually came home to my wife at the time and my very young daughter. And when they greeted me at the door, I could immediately feel that something was different. I mean, I felt disconnected. Um, I, I just I instantly felt different. And I remember when they gave me that hug, I just wanted to push right past them and go upstairs and go to sleep and hope that this had been some kind of nightmare. And that right there started my isolation. I started isolating not just from my wife, from family members, friends. Um, literally, I felt like I was alone and there wasn't anybody that I could talk to. And I started having just reoccurring nightmares mm-hmm. of this individual who tried to kill me. And mm-hmm. I had this constant fear of dying. And it's all I could think about was that... Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be here for my daughter, my two and a half year old daughter, and she's not going to know who her father was and how much I loved her. And um, that started just this whole downward spiral, which eventually created major issues in my marriage mm-hmm. um, where I, I basically, you know, I, I wasn't affectionate. I wasn't emotional. I just was completely disconnected. And I started right. drinking way too much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time. Alcohol was you know, it was the answer to get me to sleep. Even though I had constant nightmares, I just wanted to fall asleep. And alcohol was really the only thing that worked for me as far as falling asleep. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and as right. you both can imagine, when you start drinking too much alcohol, that's going to cause a lot of other issues as well. And so, um, you know, for me, the effects were immediate after this incident. And I would mm-hmm. say that gradually right. over time, right. they, they intensified and got much, much worse. Right. How much, How long ago did this incident happen? So the incident happened actually in 2012. It happened December 27, 2012, at a little bit after three in the morning. Okay. And and was there any response or support from your um, department? Uh, with was. Regard so, to- so um, in our department, you know, we had peer support teams. We had a licensed therapist that worked with our agency. She was mm-hmm, very, mm-hmm, very good mm-hmm. therapist, culturally competent. Um, but I have to tell you that, you know, prior to this incident, I didn't have an established relationship with any therapist, with any clinicians, not even really with any right. of our peer support people. And so although I knew we had those resources, I really didn't trust them and I, I didn't, you know, use them. And to be frank right. with you, we had a critical incident debrief about a week after our shooting, which involved the therapist, yeah. and involved myself, uh, the other officers that were involved, and the only dispatcher during this incident. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that, and I was the supervisor, that 
you know, we're going to go in there and we were just so hungry for information to figure out what had happened because we hadn't had a chance to talk right. and we knew our own point of views. And so instead of that being a therapeutic session, it was more of a fact finding meeting is the mm-hmm. way I looked at it and the right. other officers mm-hmm. and nobody shared their feelings. Nobody shared their emotions. And, and I remember as being the sergeant, it was like, let's get this over with. Let's check this box mm-hmm. and let's get, let's get back to work. And that's what we all want to do is we want to go back to work mm-hmm. and pretend like this never happened. So, um, you know, the therapist, she's amazing, but I just didn't have that relationship at the time. And, right. and I think it's important that we establish these relationships early on in our careers before these big, huge traumatic incidents happen. So that way, when they do, we already have that trust and that rapport built to where we can fully open up and feel comfortable talking about this stuff. How do you, how do you figure that that could happen going forward for police Well, there's a lot of things I think we can do. And, you know, honestly, to be frank with you, we need to plant the seed in the police academy or the training academies. Yeah, I agree with that. And what I mean by that, it's it's pretty simple, you know, um, and I'm not talking about a huge time commitment. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about bringing a senior officer in Mm -hmm. who can come in and it doesn't even have to be someone who's been involved in a huge incident, but someone who just talks about the realities of the job and the toll on their physical health their mental health, their relationships, their marriage, their Mm -hmm. children. And, you know, it's going to plant that seed. I I know like when people are in the academy, they're so gung-ho and so motivated. And so it's not going to sink in. But by planting that seed and if we carry it forward into Mm -hmm. the next step, which is the field training program, and Mm -hmm. and I talk about this in my book, but, you know, we have set procedures that when an officer goes to a call with their training officer, after they clear that call, they debrief it. And so they talk about, you know, the legal aspects, um, the possible violations of law or vehicle code or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. They talk about a- officer safety, evidence gathering, documentation, all these elements, but we don't talk about the human side. And, Correct. you know, this may not be appropriate with every call, but there's so many calls that we go to, like fatal car accidents, you know, serious injury, car accidents, suicides, child mm-hmm. abuse domestic violence, even just sudden deaths, you know, homicides. But if we early on have that training officer lead by example and start that conversation with their own vulnerability and just say, look, you know, this was a messed up call today and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's probably right. me for the next couple of days, you know, it just right. I can't get that image of that little girl out of my mind. And, and so sure. we normalize that. But right. what, we, what we do instead is we use gallows humor and, <laughs> We mm-hmm. brush it off. We joke about it. We pretend like it doesn't exist or bother us mm-hmm. until it's much too late. And so um, those two things I think are critical. But then you take that a step further up the chain mm-hmm. because at every level of a department and agency, we need to basically smash the stigma, make this normal sure. talking about this stuff. And so, right. mm-hmm. you know, as a patrol sergeant, I ran lineup every day and there was a period before we hit the streets usually 30 minutes where we talk about like administrative stuff. We talk about calls we missed. I mean, really stuff that's not that important, but what if we use that time? And again, as the leader, as the Sergeant, I open up that conversation with my vulnerability and say, look, I know we as a team responded to that horrific incident yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I just want to open up the conversation and let you know how that affected me, how I couldn't sleep last night and just Mm -hmm. again, humanize it because we're human. We're not, some invincible superhero 
which none of this stuff affects us. It's sort of you're, what you're talking about is giving permission to admit that we're all vulnerable. All of us are vulnerable. Doesn't mean you're weak. It just means that you are affected by horrific calls. Absolutely. And if you're not, you're a sociopath. And it's true. I know that when we go to this job, we go into this job to make a difference, to uh-huh. save lives. And I know that, you know, detachment is a defense mechanism, but that only works for so long. And Correct. like you said, is that mm-hmm. we as first responders, especially police officers, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our careers. And that's just yeah. not normal. No. The things we see and do is not normal. Right. But our feelings to it are. We just need to acknowledge that mm-hmm. and just be comfortable talking about it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a key point what you're describing in terms of making it part of the academy, but also making it part of field training where the conversations are being starting to be had. And the, the topic of mental health and the trauma of doing the job is part of the conversation we're having alongside with the training and debriefing. Um, I think that's it's an excellent point, Michael. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Wanted to come back to your timeline with the journey that you had after the um, the shooting incident, and uh, ask like about emotional wounds and secondary trauma that might have occurred um, after the actual incident. Uh, a little further down the line, what what kind of things did you experience? So it's what I like to call admin betrayal, or some people will call moral injury. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a it was about six months after my shooting. We had our first court proceeding. It was called the coroner's inquest. It was open to the public. There was reporters there. Um, a lot of people from my agency, the family members of the man that I killed was there. He had an identical twin brother. Um, I even invited my wife at the time because I hadn't really told her about what had happened. And I hope that by her being at this proceeding, she would hopefully gain some insight as to why I was so messed up and why I had changed as a person. And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember in the beginning of this proceeding, they played these dispatch tapes and it brought me right back to that night. I mean, I started sweating. My -hmm. stomach started turning. I literally felt like I was going to pass out. And Mm -hmm. eventually the judge calls me up on the stand and I'm sitting there literally a couple feet from full jury and I'm going through and the judge, you know, asked me what to say, what happened that night. And so I'm going through it, getting up to the call And where I get to the point where he comes down the stairs with a knife, I lose it. I literally break down in the courtroom. I start crying. I start bawling. And I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. I mean, I'd been in court hundreds of times, and I'd never, ever shown any kind of emotion, not just on the job, but definitely not in a courtroom in front of 60 or 70 people. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when I got done testifying, the judge excused me. He said, you know, we have what you need. Thank you, Sergeant. I remember I left the courtroom and I was so embarrassed. And I went to the bathroom and splashed water in my face and, you know, was talking to myself, like, get your, your shit together and get back in there. And and I did. And we went through the proceeding and my officers did outstanding. Hmm. About two weeks after this, 
I get called into an administrator's office. And I thought this was going to be good because we had got the finding we wanted from this hearing. Um, literally why I worked, there hadn't been a shooting that entire time I worked there as far as an officer involved shooting. Mm. And not only was I a brand new sergeant, but I mean, we saved lives. I mean, we obviously saved our own lives, but we saved a couple from being killed by a crazed man with a butcher knife. And mm-hmm. I thought for sure they were going to call me in and give me accolades and say, you know, wow, like as a brand new sergeant, you and your team did outstanding. And when I walked in that room, there was a couple other administrators and I could see right away it was not a good demeanor. I could see they're very stoic and very serious. And so I sat down and I'm a prior military guy. So I think this kind of plays into this situation. But if you outranked me, it was like, yes, sir, you know, no, ma'am. That type of thing. I didn't mm-hmm. talk back. I didn't question things. I didn't speak out. And so <laughs> when I sat down, a couple key things happened, which forever changed me and changed my path. And that was the first thing they did was question the genuineness of my emotions. And what I mean by that is they both said directly and inferred that I was acting or putting on a show for the jury and that somehow my emotions were not real. And I was in shock. I was like, I'm already embarrassed and ashamed that I broke right. down in a courtroom mm-hmm. in front of all these people. And now you're questioning my very integrity, my right. everything by, by saying this was some show or some act for, for a courtroom. I was, but again, I didn't say anything. I just sat there. I listened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They questioned my leadership ability. And at this point it had never been a question my entire time in the air force. I was a captain I was a leader mm-hmm. my entire time at the Walnut Creek Police Department, not a single time. And now my very career, my everything is being put into question. And so right. instead of asking for help at that very moment, which was my biggest mistake, I, I should have asked for help. I should have had the strength and courage to say, look, let me tell you guys what I'm going through right now. Let me tell you how my right. life is falling apart. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do that. I sucked it up. I made a conscious decision that I was never going to show emotion again. I was going to prove them all wrong. I was going to get through my probationary status as a sergeant, which they extended, by the way, because of this. Hmm. And I just, at that point, became, I didn't care. I became unsympathetic. My people, I was a supervisor. I was a leader. When they came to me with problems, it was like, those aren't problems. You guys have no idea what it means to have a problem. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I truly lost sight of my position as a leader because mm-hmm. I was so concerned that if I showed any emotion, that would be weakness. Right. It would be right. shameful. And I would lose everything. And so that very moment forever changed my path. If I would have asked for help and gotten the help I needed, I guarantee you I would still be working there today. Guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not only were you traumatized by the um, – the threat to your life, you know, by the suspect, but then you, there was uh, institutional trauma where your superiors were questioning your, uh, your emotional response, which is actually a normal emotional response when someone has post-traumatic stress and, and it hasn't been treated. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, there's two pieces of trauma right there. And Oh, by the way, none of these people had ever been involved in a fatal officer shooting where they had to take a life and almost died, you know, from a subject with a butcher knife. None of these people in this room okay. had ever been faced with that scenario okay. or situation. 
and had no idea what I was going through. Right. Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is a nonprofit alliance of mental health professionals dedicated to helping first responders heal from trauma, tragedy, and stress. We help as they manage community crises and the everyday demands of ensuring public health and safety. Established in 2011, FCTRT was formed in response to a call for emotional help from the Stamford Fire Department after a traumatic fatal fire. Less than a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred, and members again served the first responder community. Most recently, COVID-19 created a need for our support. We provide free educational presentations, pro bono sessions to deal with community disasters, and an extensive referral service to trauma-informed psychotherapists. If you're a responder in Fairfield County and need help dealing with duty-related stress, please reach out to us so you can continue to do the job you love. Visit our website at fctrt.org or find us on Instagram at Fairfield County TRT. You know, I'd love to pick your brain about how we can improve leadership and um, respond to situations like what you experienced. In other words, if you were in the opposite role, you know, uh, an officer was coming to you for that meeting, um, how, how would you approach it differently than what you experienced? You know, it's actually, it's very simple. And that is that you have to be vulnerable yourself as a leader. You have to be willing to show that you are human. You have to mm-hmm. be willing to show your subordinates that what they're feeling is normal. And, and the thing is, is if you don't have this established rapport and trust, no one is going to open up to their superior or supervisor if they're not willing to open up first. Hmm. And, you know, I've, I've met some great leaders across this country when I go and speak. And I, I recently actually met with a recently retired chief from here in Northern California. And I remember when I first met him, he told me about a story with one of his lieutenants at his agency. And I later met this person. They had an annual peer support training, which was not just for the peer support people, but the entire agency. And the whole department was there. This wasn't planned. It wasn't announced. And for whatever reason, this lieutenant, who was very high up in this department, he decided to open up and share complete transparency, complete vulnerability in this room with literally over a hundred people and share what he had been through and how his life spiraled downward and how with therapy and things like the West coast post-trauma retreat and other things, he was able to get better, but that's leadership by example. Sure. You know, when we're willing to put down our perfect chiefly image or whatever it is that we think we're portraying to the outside world, mm-hmm. and we can show our people that no, we are normal. We're human and we've mm-hmm. suffered. Our families have suffered. But again, we as leaders, we have to initiate that conversation by showing our own vulnerability. And if you're not willing to do that, your subordinates are not going to come to you when they need help. All right. I think um, it's also some of the power of a peer support group where you have people from different roles in departments and different departments uh, who are openly sharing and being vulnerable. And they may be a chief, they may be a captain, maybe, a, you know, just a guy on the line. But that environment seems to be really powerful in terms of getting people to trust and to uh, be able to be comfortable expressing some of the trauma and emotion that they're going through. Absolutely. And with this agency I was talking about, 
they actually had a culture where you could talk about this stuff where it was normal. And I saw that. I saw it with officers when I spoke there and they were asking questions openly and they were sharing their stories. And unfortunately, I would say that's not the norm. That Mm -hmm. should be the norm and we can make it the norm. But I've been to Mm -hmm. other agencies where after I speak, I've had officers come up to me and literally told me they were outcasted because they asked for help. They were shunned not only by their peers, right. but by their superiors. And they were out on an island by themselves. Well, I think um, police, you know, law enforcement is going through a shift right now. And in different places across the country, you know, you're going to have those departments where, you know, there is that built in understanding that, you know, officers are human and they are going to be impacted by these awful calls. Um, but then there's the departments that are still old school, you know, suck it up and, um, you know, get out there and, and be in control. And if you show any emotion, that's sort of a sign that you're not in control. But um, and that's such an awful message to, to give any first responder. Um, but I, I do think that the more that we talk about this, there's more and more books written about it. Um, you know, there's more and more peer support teams that are being formed within departments. Um, I, I'm really hopeful that this shift will just keep its momentum. Absolutely. And I, I'm seeing it. I mean, literally, I'm, I just got back from Alabama and was at a conference where it had all the sheriffs, all the chiefs, all the upper le- echelons. And the entire conference was based on mental health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and awareness on yeah. the subject. And after I spoke, I had countless sheriffs and chiefs that came up to me throughout that day and night who were sharing their personal stories with me. Hmm. And that's what we need is we need leaders willing to embrace this and bring people in, the experts, you know, doctors, clinicians, obviously officers who've been through it, who are willing mm-hmm. to openly talk about this stuff. And, right. and more importantly, know that I'm living proof that you can get better. There's a whole new other life on the side of this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the key to is that, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is that suicide is the number one killer of our first responders. I mean, if you take away COVID beyond that, suicide is the number one killer of law enforcement officers. And we mm-hmm. are much more likely to die by our own hands right. than the hands of an assailant. And that is a fact. Mm-hmm. I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you first responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that, let's raise awareness. Brings you together to talk about it, and it tells you you're not alone. So many places we can go, and I I think right now I want to steer it to um, differentiating between PTSI and PTSD, and I'll I'll let Stacey and uh, you, Michael, speak about this, because I know you you want to make sure make it clear that there is a difference and we need to be um, understand what that difference is. Absolutely. So, you know, the word disorder from PTSD, that word alone is, yeah. is what prevents people, a lot of right. people from asking for help because mm-hmm. a disorder has a negative connotation to it. Yes, it and does. And 
when somebody hears that, they don't want to be associated with a disorder. And, you know, the way I equate it to is that we have so many first responders who have knee injuries, back injuries, shoulder injuries. Mm-hmm. Well, the facts are that we have a lot of first responders with mental injuries. And Correct. You know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I've seen and I've read several studies which show that there's brain scans, brain imaging, which show unequivocally that exposure to trauma or exposure to repeated trauma causes a biological chemical change to the human brain. It's a fact. And so the trauma that we're exposed to causes an injury to the brain. And if we Mm -hmm. change that one simple word from disorder to injury, that shows you that you can get treatment. You can get better. Correct. You can get help. Right. And, you know, that word disorder, it's just, ah, I mean, it, it has such a negative connotation. And then there's the other side to this, which I've actually had this done, but there's medical procedures, uh, stellate ganglion block, which I've had mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And that is to treat the physical symptoms of PTSD, mm-hmm. not the psychological, but it basically allows you to slow down the amygdala, the primitive brain, mm-hmm. which is causing all the fight or flight, all these really intense physical symptoms. And then you follow that up with conventional therapy or programs or EMDR, you know, other things on top of that. Absolutely. You know, the facts are, is that PTSD causes and manifests itself in numerous physical symptoms, which cause tons of health problems. And in my case, I have no doubt that my cancer diagnosis, my skin cancer repeated diagnosis is a result of the stress that I was under and exposed to. Hmm. Well, Stacey, I, I know this is an area you love to speak sure. about as well. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, what's actually happening to the brain? Sure. So um, a traumatized brain, it, I mean, it's an invisible brain injury, right? So um, we know that on, on SPECT scans, when someone goes through a traumatic incident, it, it's, uh, the brain is, um, it's almost like it's being bathed in cortisol because we release adrenaline and cortisol when we have a fight or flight response. Um, sometimes though, the amygdala, um, does not stop responding. And so the person feels constantly, uh, hypervigilant. They feel agitated. You know, their their whole nervous system is activated, and we we have brain scans that show that the brain is actually um, working too hard. What you're seeing on the screen um, in the first image uh, is you can see a healthy brain on the left, where it has a normal amount of activity. The activity is reflected in in red, and on the right is a traumatized brain. It's a brain with post traumatic um, stress injury. Um, and you can see how overly active that that brain is. That person can't think clearly. They can't sleep. They're probably having nightmares. They're hypervigilant. They have hyperstartle. Um, they, they're probably very angry all the time, very short fuse. So um, you can see very clearly the difference between a healthy brain and a traumatized brain. Okay. And I'm not talking about a TBI. I'm talking about a brain that is, you know, this is post- Um, experiencing a traumatic incident, witnessing or being involved in a life-threatening incident. And then the the, um, next image that you see on the screen is the underside version. So again, healthy brain on the left, and you can see the traumatized brain on the right, um, how active it is. Um, 
And then uh, one of the treatments that we use, you know, Michael talked about um, uh, um, stellate ganglion block. I've had a couple of clients that have had that and, and they've had positive effect. So that's called SGB block. But another treatment for um, post-traumatic stress injury is EMDR. So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. We have we have done a podcast where we um, have talked about that and we've explained it. So as you can see in this image um, before uh, EMDR, you can see the um, the brain is overly stimulated. And as we say, it's on fire. The person really cannot relax no matter what they do. And that's why a lot of people will take benzodiazepines. A lot of people will drink because that's like the only way that they feel like they can turn their brain off. Um, after four sessions of EMDR, as you can see in, in this, um, the third picture here, how the brain has quieted down and looks more like a normal brain. And um, as an EMDR therapist, I can tell you that, you know, after, say, four sessions where somebody has had a uh, traumatic incident, um, they are no longer having uh, nightmares. They're able to sleep through the night. Um, they're not drinking as much. Uh, their thinking is a lot more clear. Their mood is more positive. They're able to be around other people. They're not isolating as much. So you see dramatic um, mental, emotional, and physical changes um, in, in the behavior of, of a person who goes and gets the right treatment for post-traumatic stress injury. Amazing stuff. And uh, it's even more amazing when you see it so graphically. Yeah. I mean, and I show these images to first responders because um, they, a lot of people don't believe that they can heal from post-traumatic stress. They, they, they've heard, because it was talked about that if you've got PTSD, you've got it for the rest of your life. Mm. And that there's, I mean, that, that angers me because um, it, it can be healed. It just like any other injury. And so um, I do have a lot of people that doubt. And so I will show them those images and say, well, Here's a brain that was, you know, before treatment. And here's a brain after treatment. Um, and so that that gives people hope. And that's really what people need. Because if you look at any first responder that has post-traumatic stress is going to feel on some level completely out of control and like a failure. That they've just, they've just lost their edge. Um, and I, I think that that has a lot to do with why they go so quickly to hopelessness or to alcoholism um, and that suicide is so prevalent. If we could just get the message out there that um, this can be healed, that there is hope, um, perhaps we could uh, decrease those numbers. So, uh, Absolutely. I think, though, also, too, it's very important to note that there's not a magic bullet or magic cure like there's different things that work for different people. And, yes. you know, in my case, um, it's definitely a combination of things that have helped me and, and I'm still working on it. And there's things that I'm still doing today. And to your point to EMDR, um, that's something that I was exposed to at the West Coast post-trauma retreat. And I've had it done several times. And for me, it doesn't work, but I have personally seen it work for countless people. And yeah. the reason why I tell this is because you know, when people try something and it doesn't work, understand that that's okay. Yeah, you know, it right. It doesn't mean that you're abnormal or it just means that you have to keep searching and looking for the things that are going to work. Right, And I right. think it's really important for people to know that this takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work and it takes patience. 
There's going to be good days and bad days. There's going to be major setbacks. Mm-hmm. It's a journey. And just understand that there's different things that are going to help you along this journey. And just, mm-hmm. you know, don't right. give up, have an open mind and definitely think about trying new things when it comes to this. Absolutely. Right. Our mission at Responder Wellness, Inc. is to subsidize or provide free of charge safety equipment and wellness services to first responders, including police officers, firefighters, EMS personnel, and 911 operators throughout Connecticut. Resources include scholarships to train new EMTs, a responder and veteran-only AA group in Danbury, Connecticut, as well as police vests, a fire and EMS boot program, yoga classes, gym memberships, and t-shirts. The founder of Responder Wellness, Inc., co-leads a peer support group sponsored by Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. Responder Wellness, Inc. is a nonprofit 501c3. Find us on the web at responderwellness.org, on Facebook at Responder Wellness, Inc., or email us, responderwellness at gmail.com. Responder Wellness, Inc., putting responders first. Let's switch gears a little bit and look at this from a slightly different perspective. Uh, Michael, I love your um, insight into this. So in terms of the family and particularly spouses, how can spouses support a law enforcement officer who's suffering with PTSI? You know, this starts at the beginning of the relationship and I made a huge mistake in my relationship. And that was that I never talked about the job. Mm -hmm. I always thought that by not talking about it, not bringing home, I was somehow protecting my family. Mm-hmm. And the, the realities are, is that we need at home to establish a culture, just like at work, of talking about this. And I don't mean bringing home the gory details and scaring our, our spouses or partners mm-hmm. or loved ones. Mm-hmm. But as an example, if I come home and I'm in a bad mood, I need to communicate that, look, this has nothing to do with you. You know, I'm sorry. I went to a very tragic, you know, fatal versus pedestrian accident today. I just need like a half hour to decompress mm-hmm. and then we can re-engage and, mm-hmm, and we can mm-hmm. talk about it. But you're, you're, you're starting this conversation because otherwise if you don't do that, your children, your partners, your spouses are going to think it's them all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, right. Right. you know, by creating this culture early on at home where we talk about good days and bad days, we talk about the job again, not in graphic details, Right. But we explain to them the reality of what it is that we do and see. I think that's really important. And so that way, our spouses or partners, they're going to be there for us. It's mm-hmm. we're going to have that comfort level where we're talking about this stuff. But in my case, I never did that. And so when it came to my breaking point, it was too late for me. Right. There was no support there. My mm-hmm. spouse at the time didn't know how to talk about it. I mean, I think she was scared and shocked, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she'd never seen me like this. Right. And, and that's the key is, again, let's normalize it. Let's make this part of our routine. Let's bring our family members into it to where they can understand what it is that we see and what it is that we do and that we are going to have some bad days and that it's not them, it's the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and as you said earlier, to kind of start that process at the academy point of the career. And, and that way, if we carry it through, we establish that uh, the conversation throughout what may be decades of a career uh, 
we could have a retirement where there's still an intact marriage, you know, uh, healthy <laughs> right. family relationships, yeah. and we can enjoy those years after the, the career uh, with that, that kind of uh, functional uh, family situation. Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. Mm-hmm. I mean, the facts are that if we normalize this and talk about it, we can get through a full career, whether that's 20, 30 years, and we can come out healthy on the other side. Mm-hmm. And we can mm-hmm. live long lives. But but we're not doing that. We're dying within five years of retirement because we aren't healthy physically. We aren't healthy mentally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've got to establish that from the very beginning. Yes, indeed. And I I don't want to go too much further without um, having you speak about your book, uh, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. Um, tell us what the book represents in terms of your journey that you've been describing and what uh, resources and solutions uh, do you offer? So first of all, I have to talk about Dr. Shauna Springer. I mean, she's the one that made this a reality. She's the one that made this project happen. And Mm -hmm. Doc Springer has, she's a clinical psychologist. She's worked with combat veterans and first responders most her career. So she gets it. She understands it. And we agreed to do this project together because she basically felt that my story was so powerful and would resonate with so many different people mm-hmm. that this book could save lives. Mm-hmm. And, and truly, it is saving lives and it's going to save many more. And this book has a very unique structure, which I don't think it's been done before. And basically, there's about 15 chapters. Every chapter is split into two distinct parts. The first part is my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood until now. And then Doc Springer has a very distinct section where she breaks it down. She talks about, in layman's terms, why these things are affecting us, why we're doing the things we're doing. And she explains it in a way that not just first responders, not just military, I mean, anybody on the street Mm -hmm. is going to see law enforcement, first responders in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I've got so much feedback on this book from non first responders on how it truly opened up their eyes. And another fascinating thing is that this book, I mean, obviously it's going to save lives and that's the main purpose of it, but this book is going to help improve community relations between law enforcement and the public. Right. Absolutely need that. If you look at the the media, you know, um, especially the perception of police, you know, that really, that's such a concern right now. But, you know, we do a horrible job as law enforcement because we don't let the public in. And we have this front, this image up that nothing bothers us, that these things don't affect us. And the public needs to know, just like we've been talking about on here, is that we are human. These things do take a toll. They do affect us. And not only do we have the work-related trauma, but we have all the same things that they're dealing with at home. (laughs) Financial issues, you know, health matters, relatives getting sick, people dying. Mm -hmm. I mean – these things happen to all of us. And mm-hmm. so this book is truly going to help bridge that gap. And it's, you know, the thing is today actually is six weeks exactly that it's come out. Huh. And it's been a bestseller every single day since it came out. Wow. Every Thank single day. And this book, if you go on Amazon, you read the reviews. I mean, people are pouring their heart and souls into these reviews. I mean, literally saving lives. This book is saving lives. 
Well, it's, awesome. a, it's a powerful product of um, what we've been talking about a lot, which is post-traumatic growth, right? Mm-hmm, taking mm-hmm. taking all, right. Uh, all you've been through and, and turning it into something positive in a way to be of service to uh, to the other responders and it sounds like the general public as well. Absolutely. And the beautiful thing is in this book, we talk about a lot of these different things about West Coast post-trauma retreat, save a warrior, SGB, culturally competent therapist. And we also have a section in the very back which has a resource section. It's got hotlines, text lines. It's got different retreats, mm-hmm. different programs, whether it's faith-based or for veterans or first responders for spouses. And so, you know, the thing is the book, it's, it's about hope. It's about a journey in showing the other side through the darkest, deepest despairs of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. When we're um, developing leaders in a department, um, helping them to, to learn about these resources that you're describing and also the, you know, the journey that you've been through. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if this book was required reading for everybody who's promoting to another level up as an officer yeah. or administrator in a department? This just, uh, you know, that would be a game changer. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because we've actually already had some sheriffs and I've had some very high up military leaders who have reached out to me and they're buying the books for their senior leadership. They're talking about buying it for the Academy. So That's wonderful. I mean, I know the reality of, as far as, you know, globally or across the nation is it's, it's a long ways away, but that process is already starting. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that if anybody picks up this book, they will not be able to put it down and we need more people to pick it up and start reading it. And it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing. Great. And uh, so let us know where can people find the book? So it's on Amazon. Very easy to find. Uh, we have paperback, hardback. It's on Kindle. And you just go on Amazon. You can either search by my name, Michael Sugru, mm-hmm. or you can just type in Relentless Courage, and it'll come right up. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And uh, where can people find you otherwise out there on the social media channels? So I am all over social media. Uh, LinkedIn <laughs> is one of my biggest platforms. I'm on there every single day. I check my messages. Uh, but I also have a couple Instagram and Facebook pages. The first one is Sergeant Michael Sagru. That one is on Facebook and Instagram. And then I run a page called First Responders First, which is also on Facebook and Instagram. So any of those platforms, you can reach out to me, you can send a message, and I'll definitely get back to you. Great. Um, Any other thoughts, Michael, before we wrap up? I do. I have a single thought is that (laughs) if you're out there watching this or listening to this thinking that you're alone, thinking that you're the only one that's feeling the way you are and just feeling like there's no hope whatsoever. I promise you there is hope and there is help. All you have to do is raise your hand and get the strength and courage to ask for help because it's out there and there's a whole new life on the other side of this. Mm. That's a great message. Hmm. Michael, thank you so much for spending time with us for all that you're doing out there to help law enforcement and other responders um, through this what we're really terming a mental health crisis um, that's affecting yeah. a lot of people. So uh, powerful work and kudos for all you do. Thank you. It takes teamwork in this fight. So the more mm-hmm. of us in this fight, the better. So thank you mm-hmm. for what you both do as well. Thank you. Sure. You're welcome. Uh, on behalf of Dr. Stacy Raymond, I uh, want to invite you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Responder Resilience, Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc., bbsradio.com. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website where you can catch all past episodes is respondertv.com. Till the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself, take care.